So in speaking about these visitors to the mind that torment us, how do we work with them? We know that they're there, kind of. We see them. We try to get rid of them. We try to avoid them. We try to minimize them. We try to deny them. And yet, they're pretty persistent. So, taking Saito Utejaniya's understanding as guidance, it's not you who removes these scissors. Wisdom does that job. If we understand that, then the direction of our practice is to learn about these torments. Learn about them. Not just to avoid them. Now, you know, we offered in the beginning of the retreat, you know, the instruction to attend to a primary object, the breath, or or your posture, whatever it is you're using. Now, why do we do that? Why do we give you an object to pay attention to? Well, because when you try to pay attention to it, the first thing you realize, and this is the this is the first insight that you all had, is I can't do this very well. <laughs> I'm lost in thought a lot, and that's that's not insignificant. That's really significant because that's the doorway to all of these torments. Because when you're not with the breath, your mind is entangled with one of these visitors. Of course, you haven't noticed that because you're trying to be with the breath, trying to be, trying to be with the breath, and frustrated, and disappointed, and striving, and upset, and sleepy, and dull. Didn't notice all those, but just trying to be with the breath. But now you have permission to notice them. But you need some, you need some degree or some continuity of mindfulness to begin to see them. You can't just sit down and think your think your way along and recognize them. You actually have some mindfulness then you can see them. So, there are three elements of the wisdom to be gathered in order to know and release these torments. The first is that we need information. We need to hear about, or we need to read about, these states of mind, being visitors, being the cause or the source of our suffering, calling them unskillful or unwholesome or however you want, but recognizing that they're dangerous because they cause us to suffer. We need that information. Secondly, we need to think about, we need to use our intelligence to think about these visitors to the mind. How are we going to work with them? Why are they visitors, not why are they visitors, but why do they cause this kind of suffering? What kind of suffering do they actually cause us? How can we support ourselves to you know, endure the practice to awaken to them. So with the information that we receive, we actually need to reflect intelligently about these states of mind and how to work with them. And thirdly, in our practice of awareness, as we are mindful, we become insightful. We, we begin to see into the nature of these states of mind, and we begin to intuit their uh, their nature. So insight and intuition reveals their nature, and it is this nature of the torments, when understood, that frees us from suffering with them. So I'm going to talk about these three elements of wisdom. The first is information. 
So we need to hear about these torments. And the big three, the big three headings, the big three categories are delusion, which I've mentioned, attachment, which I've mentioned, and aversion. And all of the visitors to the mind are some flavor of those. But in the sutras and in the discourses and in the commentaries, more than a thousand have been identified. So you don't have to go looking for all of them. But you know, you, you know what some of them are. You know what your top ten are anyway. And that's enough. And then once we know them, to identify the five that are the hindrances to practice. These, this is important. Aversion and attachment, pretty obviously, they impede our practice. Sloth and torpor and restlessness, kind of polar opposites. They're also you know, hinder our practice. And then doubt. So if you just get these five in your mind, aversion, attachment, sloth, torpor, <coughs> restlessness, and doubt, then if that's all you see in your practice, you're doing really well. So once we have this information, we know what we know what we're looking for. So as we practice, notice, meaning remember to recognize when these states of mind arise. Now they, we all know the words of you know self pity. We know the words frustration. We know the words disappointment. We know the words striving. But do you recognize it in your own experience? This is hard. It's really not easy to be able to name what it is that has carried your mind away from the present moment, that has caused you not to remember to recognize the present moment. And any time that you don't remember to recognize the present moment, one of these visitors has taken your mind away. So you could just stop the, stop the stream right there and just say, okay, what is going on? You know, and then you may recognize the flavor. You may begin to recognize the flavor or the way that this visitor manifests in your mind or in your experience. And each of us has different ways of accessing these visitors. Some of us see the thoughts or hear the thoughts that are running through our head and say, oh, well, those are angry thoughts. Oh, well, anger must have arisen. Or maybe some, some of us can just feel in our heart area what, what is going on in the mind. So there's different ways that people access it. But each one of us has to find out for ourselves. And the way we do that is cultivating mindfulness. Remembering to recognize the present moment. So that when a visitor arrives, arrives at the mind and we get entangled, we recognize it. And when we do that, if we're able to name it, then we have a clear perception of it. We really recognize it. Perception is being able to recognize what is going on. And when we, cult- when we practice naming or labeling an experience, it strengthens the clarity of perception. Now, why is that important? It's important because... Clear perception is the proximate cause for mindfulness. So if you clearly perceive this moment, it is the cause, the proximate cause, of mindfulness the next moment. So the more clearly you recognize this moment, the more likely you are to recognize the next moment. So when we 
see, when we recognize, or remember, and recognize one of these visitors to the mind, we own it. Meaning, we objectively and subjectively own this. We say, this, this is the way it is for me, for now. We, we subjectively you know, acknowledge that, that this, is, this is happening within the mind. And we are objective about it, because we can begin to, rather than being caught in the state of mind, in the visitor, we, we are able to just step out a little bit and recognize it, even though we're still aware, we're aware of it and still feeling it, but we're not lost in it. And this is the beginning of this objective, subjective, um, paradoxical way of being with ourselves. To name one of these visitors begins to take its power away. And this has been uh, objectively verified in scientific studies decades ago when clients or students or test patients or test people were tested with when they could name their emotion it uses a different part of the brain than feeling that emotion. So when you're caught up in an emotional drama and you're just inflamed with whatever it is to be able to name it takes energy away from the indulgence in it to activate another part of the mind which is able to recognize it, objectively recognize it. And in that way, we begin to take away the power. We begin to weaken the power of these states of mind, these tormenting states of mind. So to name a demon begins to take its power away. But, often, when we recognize that we're caught in depression, or we're caught in sloth, or we're caught in self-pity, or we're caught in you know, shame, or whatever it is that you're, you know, whatever visitor has entered your mind, we often feel defensive. We feel defensive, and we feel upset, and we kind of, we kind of try to deny it, avoid it, kind of dismiss it, minimize it, in some way just kind of pretend that it's not really happening to me. And so, in this way, we tend to overlook even though we glimpse it, we see it, we kind of we know it's there, we don't really turn to it. I don't mean you have to welcome it home, but to just not be in denial about it. So the second um, factor in working with these uh, torments of the mind is to relax. Relax your judgment. Relax your uh, condemnation, your self-condemnation. Relax your uh, distaste for actually owning the state of mind. This is not just struggling to get rid of it, nor to deny it, but not to indulge in it either, but to clearly recognize this is what's happening. This is the way it is for me, for now. And those two little phrases add a lot of space in the mind. For me, own it. For now, it's only temporary. Really helpful. So it's important to um, recall that these torments arise due to causes and conditions. And what are some of the causes and conditions that give rise to them? Well, one is if we don't know they're unskillful, we'll welcome we'll welcome them. 
you know, so we need to have some right understanding, some uh, wholesome understanding about these visitors to the mind. Hmm? And then we need to be, well, mindful. If, 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 if there is no awareness or no mindfulness, that gives free reign to these visitors. They won't be recognized. And so they just move in and they take over the house. There are also, um, when we have weak energy in our practice, meaning just kind of coasting along, kind of casual about it, kind of lackadaisical, then for sure, these habits of mind are much stronger than your, than your intention. And so if your energy is weak in practicing, for sure, the, the visitors are going to take advantage of the weak mind. But, one of these conditions for the arising of these visitors of mind is lack of wise attention. Remember that. We're not paying careful enough attention. As soon as we recognize it and start paying wise attention to it, meaning make this state of mind the object that you're aware of, once there's wise attention, you have removed the unwise attention that gives rise to it. So quite naturally, not because you're doing anything about it, but quite naturally, wise attention undermines the strength of these visitors to the mind, and eventually they'll weaken and no longer be present. So it's important to recall this knowledge that this, these are the very... These don't arise out of mistakes. They arise out of causes and conditions. And we can address those causes and conditions. So that's using the right information, skillfully. And now we need to think about it. We have to use the second element of wisdom, our intelligence, to think about these torments. Now, generally, we sometimes think that thinking in meditation practice is bad. But actually, you can't meditate without thinking. Because to meditate, or to try to be mindful, you have to remind yourself what to do. You have to remember the instructions. You have to coach yourself. You have to kind of use your, use your evaluation of how it's going to make these mid-course corrections so that you stay on the path, you stay on track. If you don't use that kind of thinking, you're just kind of hoping, you know. You know. And as my colleague Kamala often says, you know, give up all hope. I mean, give up all hope of a better past. <laughs> but give up, give up all hope. Instead, use your use your faith, use your knowledge, and it's not hope that's going to free you from these. It's actual practice and awareness that's going to free you from these torments. So, the third factor in working with them, the first use of intelligence, is to refrain from acting them out. Because so often, when we feel impatient, we just act out our impatience. Or when we feel angry, we just act out our anger or irritation, or we write a note, or we give somebody stink eye, or whatever it is, we just kind of, you know. And when we act it out, we might dissipate it a little bit. We kind of spread it out, we kind of dissipate it so it's not so intense in our own mind, but we're only strengthening it, we're only feeding it, 
Because it got a reaction from us, great, it can live to another day. So, one way that we refrain and not act them out is by uh, reflecting, thinking, thinking skillfully, actually. Now, sometimes when these visitors arrive in the mind, they're overwhelming. You know, we get overwhelmed with sadness, we get overwhelmed with fear, we get overwhelmed with, you know, our self-judgment, we get overwhelmed with doubt. And when we're overwhelmed, we really can't be mindfully aware of it. That's what being overwhelmed means. We can't be mindful. It's there, we're over. We're, we're overwhelmed, we're, we're swamped by it, we're lost in it. Can't be objectively recognizing it. So when that's happening, we can replace that visit to the mind with a more wholesome uh, object in our experience. So I often say, turn away from that state of mind. Notice seeing, hearing, feeling, what you're actually seeing, hearing, and feeling at that time. You're still being mindful. You're mindful of seeing. You're mindful of hearing. You're mindful of feeling the sensations in your body. So you're not avoiding practice, you're not giving up practice, you're not abandoning practice, you're just turning your mind away from what is at present an overwhelming force. And knowing when to back off from an overwhelming force is wisdom. You're using your intelligence to tell you, wait a minute, I can't be aware of this. You, you, you can evaluate that. And then you can reflect and say, intelligently reflect on, well, how, what, what can I do? Well, you can turn your attention to something else. This is being intelligent in our practice. Sometimes we can just reflect on the antidote so that when aversion arises in the mind and we're really caught up in aversion, you know, the aversion of anger, impatience, irritation, sadness, when we're caught up, overwhelmed by then we can practice loving-kindness. If you know loving-kindness practice, then you can practice loving-kindness as a antidote to being overwhelmed by aversion. Or when you're caught in the blame game and you're blaming somebody for you know, the suffering of your life, you know, and you recognize that, and you just really can't get out of the story, then you can practice forgiveness. You, know, you can try forgiving yourself, try forgiving the other person. You're still being mindful, because it takes mindfulness to practice metta. It takes mindfulness to practice forgiveness. It takes mindfulness to kind of arouse faith or confidence, to remember, to recall prior practice when you were practicing well, or other stories of others that you've heard about the challenges in their practice that have inspired you. And that can bring you know, a kind of a rush of faith or confidence or trust in your own practice as a way of overcoming temporarily an appearance or a visiting, a visitor of doubt. So, replacing that state, mental state with something that's uh, other sense door activation, or reflecting on their opposite, an antidote, or just avoid them. Just turn your attention away from them. Sometimes, you know, when we're caught in a particular flavor of one of these visitors to the mind, and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to be with it, but it's, it's overwhelming, you know, sometimes just go back to the primary object. Just forget about it. Go back to the primary object. Attend to it with some diligence. And what that does is it collects the energy of the mind 
When the mind is overwhelmed, it's really dispersed. It's, it doesn't have any strength to it, and so it's easily overwhelmed. So when you tend to a primary object with some continuity, you strengthen the mind, you build up its uh, battery charge, so to speak, so that when you next turn to look at that experience, you have the strength of mind to not be overwhelmed. So avoiding turning your attention to something else. So this is a way of, these are strategies for refraining from acting out these visitors to the mind. And once we are not acting them out, we've recognized them, we've relaxed our judgment about it, we're not acting them out, then we need to, the fourth factor in working with them is to reframe our understanding. Because so often the assumption in our mind is I can't I can't meditate now because I'm sleepy. I mean that's pretty common in the first three. I can't meditate now. I'm, my mind's too restless. I can't meditate now. I've got too much pain in the body. I can't. And in fact, that's a wrong understanding. So we need to we need to recognize that assumption in the mind and say, wait a minute. These experiences of these visitors to the mind are the very place to practice being mindful, being aware. And we know it's going to take some some effort because if we're not continuously effortful in being aware of them, we will be overwhelmed by them. So we have to you know, arouse that understanding that, oh, I'm not yet able to be aware of these states of mind, but that doesn't mean I should avoid them. You know, this is the very place to try to be aware, to bring awareness to experience that we're not yet able to. I know that, I mean, now that you can imagine, here it is, you're kind of wallowing, swallowed up by sleepiness. And you're going to say, oh, right, I'm supposed to be aware of this. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you have to use your intelligence, you have to be really, you know, arouse the effort or the energy to be willing to do that. And we do this because, you know, we have these wrong understandings. We have this wrong understanding that if I'm sleepy, I can't meditate. If I'm angry, I can't meditate. If I'm restless, I can't meditate. If I'm whatever, I can't meditate. And that's a wrong understanding. So we need to bring in right understanding, reframe our uh, experience, uh, reframe our misunderstanding. But let's face it, these habits are very deeply conditioned. You know, we have resorted to these strategies hundreds of thousands of times in our life. Getting angry, getting impatient, getting fearful, pursuing a desire. We, 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 they just, they rule the roost. And so we need to be patient. They are going to arise a lot. They just are. You can count on it. It's not like you see them once or twice and therefore they should go away. Ah, I'm sorry. They might temporarily go away. They'll be back. You know, these little torments are really tricky. You know, when you come on a retreat like this, you know, and you're, you get excited about coming on retreat, you know, and you're making plans, I'm going to go on retreat. Yeah, okay. I really like it. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the torments in the mind, you just say, yeah, how long are you going to be gone? A week. Okay, we'll wait. Yeah. 
Sometimes they're just waiting. This you go, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't find them. You just have a good retreat. Then you get back, or oh, they ambush you. Right? So try to recognize that these torments are simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing the strength of them. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude of aversion, that's the problem. (coughs) Thinking that it shouldn't be wandering, that's the problem. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis, Sayadrotejaniya says, often make the mistake of expecting or hoping for a good experience rather than being willing to try to work with the defilements. So you see the announcement, hey, it's going to be a retreat. Feed and jelly, yeah, that'd be fine. Go calm down, clear out, get some love and peace and space. (laughs) Cool. Sorry, that's not what happens here. What happens here is constant confrontation with the torments. You know, but who has ever come to a retreat who said, look, seven days of confronting your most demonous torments of the mind. No. <laughs> you couldn't pay somebody to go to a retreat like that. But that's what happens here, right? I mean, you, know, you don't need me to tell So, so we have this information. We recognize, begin to recognize these uh, torments of the mind. We relax around the judgment that this, we're bad because they've arisen. We use our intelligence to refrain from acting them out and to reframe our wrong assumption that they're an impediment to practice. And then we practice mindfulness. So the third element of wisdom is insightful awareness and intuitive understanding. So the fifth factor of working with any of these states of mind is to be mindfully aware of them. Now, what does that actually mean? To be mindfully aware of something. It means that we become intimate with it. It's not that we're just kind of seeing it over there. We, we feel our way into this state of mind. Now, we've all experienced you know, these states of mind. And we know the story of them. We know the narrative. We know the story, chatter, chatter, chatter. But what does it actually feel like? You know, when we, when we get into one of these emotional storms, some desire, aversion, frustration, disappointment, depression or something, there's three things going on. There's the story. You know, the blah, 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 blah. That's why I am, you know, angry, irritated, you know, impatient or whatever. And then there are the physical sensations that are conditioned by that mental state. And sometimes they're really intense. So that when we're caught up in desire, man, the body is just flooded with, you know, that the, the flavor of desire. I hope you've noticed what that is. Or, you know, when we're caught up in frustration, there's the feeling of that. When we're caught up in depression, there's the, the heaviness and the dullness of the body is phenomenal. Okay, so we have the story, the narrative of my, my life, and we have these physical sensations going on over here. And what's left? The feeling of the mental state, right here. So what does it actually feel like? Well, for this we need to you know, really get clo- allow ourselves, invite ourselves to really get close to these states of mind. Now this is just the opposite of our tendency. Our habit is, 
get rid of them, get away from them, deny them, avoid them. And so, you know, we're going to have to encourage ourselves to, okay, let me, let me just feel what this feels like. We know the story. The story goes on forever. You know, you can still remember your upsetness from 10 years ago about something, or the fear that you experienced somewhere back there. And the story goes on forever. It just, it's, it's available anytime you want to remember it. But the actual feeling of that mental state, long gone. Long gone. So we want to catch it as it's happening. What is not the story? Because that'll go on even after the feeling is over. So we want to feel our way, invite ourselves to really get intimate, to feel into what does this mental state feel like? And don't expect an easy answer. You know, you can't put it into words, but you can feel it. You can learn how to feel it. So use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature, Sairutajaniya says. They are a natural phenomenon. Everyone experiences them. If there is anger in the mind, don't think more about what is making you angry. That's the narrative. Instead, notice, oh, there's anger, and get interested in it, saying, oh, this is anger. What I'm experiencing is the nature of anger. Huh, what's this like? What is it doing to my thoughts? What does it feel like in the body? So when we investigate the nature of these mental states like this, we arouse awareness continually. In this way, you don't work at being angry, you work at being continuously aware. Sayyidu says. Don't be led by greed. Take time to learn a little bit about greed. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed, you will never understand its nature. If you keep trying to satisfy your needs, you'll never understand its nature. A second way of investigating the states of mind, and I mention it because sometimes you know, I hear students say, I've seen this before. I know all about my story and this experience of some drama, some trauma, some upsetness in my life. I know all about it. Well, our understanding is if it keeps coming back and it keeps hooking you and you keep getting entangled or overwhelmed in it, something about that story, something about that feeling has not yet been known, hasn't been seen hasn't been recognized. So a way of investigating that kind of situation is to, to acknowledge, I know this story, here it is again, oh my, you know, I've been down this road before, I know everything about it. Okay, just say, I know, I know the story, put it over here, I know the, I know the, what it feels like, put it over here, I know how I feel, okay, right. And then ask yourself, what has not yet been recognized here? Or what else is going on to be known? And that that makes a space in the mind. You know, you don't know what you're you don't know what you're looking for. You haven't seen it. You haven't recognized it. So you make a space in the mind, saying, "I recognize all this. Put that aside. What else is here?" And sometimes, what else is going on, or what else has not yet been recognized, comes into view. But you can't kind of be keeping an eye out for it. 
You just have to make the space in the mind by saying, okay, I know the story, put that aside, what else is going on? That's also a way of investigating. As Sadhguru Tejaniya says again, do not try to avoid objects or experiences. Don't try to avoid experiences. Instead, try to avoid getting entangled in these torments. The experience itself is not the torment. The torment is our dysfunctional relationship to the experience or dysfunctional strategy for dealing with the experience. So try not to, you know, don't, don't try to avoid experiences. In our life we're going to experience everything, pleasant and unpleasant. You know, it's not our choice. Stuff happens, right? Okay. But knowing that we can't kind of control everybody and everything out there to make it just the way we want it, okay, then we prepare our own heart so that it cannot get entangled in what happens or not get in in an entangled, tormented relationship with what happens. When we do this, as we make the effort to kind of get close to, to feel into, to be aware of, a couple of things happen. One is, we understand this is really not very satisfying. No matter, even if it's desire, you know, as long as you're focused on the object of your desire, it's pleasant. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> gimme, gimme. I want, I want, I need. I need. But as soon as you turn around and look at the feeling of desire, and you feel into that, it's really not satisfying at all. So we recognize the dukkha characteristic of all of these torments of the mind. We also recognize that you know we can't control them, we can't prevent them from arising. We can't, you know, we don't, we don't. They're not ours to control. They arise due to causes and conditions. And if the causes and conditions are there, they will arise. We have some, you know, some ability to work with some of those conditions. Let's do that. But we realize that they have a life of their own. They're not amenable to our control. This is recognizing or realizing the anatta characteristic of all these states of mind. And thirdly, if we're willing and able to kind of get there, tune into, feel our way into we will realize they don't last very long. They really don't last very long. As soon as we bring this wise attention, a willing, a willingness to experience the discomfort or the unsatisfactoriness of it and the lack of control over it, as soon as we do that, willingly, and we feel into it, they don't last. We recognize the anicca or the impermanent characteristic of them. Well, these three realizations, the dukkha characteristic, the anatta characteristic, the anicca characteristic, that they're unsatisfactory, they're conditioned, we don't control them, and they're impermanent, these are the vipassana insights that liberate the mind from these torments. We're no longer confused about them. If we spend enough time observing them and we get, we grok these characteristics of these states of mind, we won't be fooled by them again. But this is how insight 
releases the mind from the grip of these torments. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well. You must have been doing well today. In order to understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Remember that it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does the job. And when you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally.